The Hamlet Podcast, Episode 30. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Conor Hamrity. Rather neatly, we don't just reach 30 episodes this week, but we also come to the end of Act 1, Scene 4. The action will keep moving straight into Scene 5, but it's no harm to mark the fact that we have reached yet another milestone. We ended last time with Hamlet absolutely determined to follow the ghost and find out what it has to say, having weighed up his options. Horatio now chimes in with earnest concern for the safety of Hamlet's body and soul. What if it tempts you toward the flood, my lord, or to the dreadful summit of the cliff that beetles o'er his base into the sea, and there assume some other horrible form, which might deprive your sovereignty of reason and draw you into madness? Think of it. The very place puts toys of desperation, without more motive, into every brain that looks so many fathoms to the sea and hears it roar beneath. This is a particularly maritime speech, full of images of the sea. It's clues like this from Shakespeare that give us a sense of Elsinore Castle being surrounded completely by the sea, a sense that has often been foregrounded in film versions of the play. Untroubled as Shakespeare was by the actual geographies of mainland Europe, in this he was absolutely right. Kronborg Castle in Helsingborg in Denmark, home of the quote-unquote real Hamlet, is indeed surrounded by water. So Horatio's concerns are absolutely pragmatic, to say nothing of his concern for Hamlet's metaphysical well-being. First and foremost, Horatio is warning, don't get led astray off the battlements and down into the water below. Shakespeare is often concerned with spirits that might tempt characters to their downfall. An obvious example is the influence of the witches in Macbeth. Horatio warns that the spirit may tempt Hamlet toward the flood, which is almost biblical in its proportions, the way he phrases it. Worse than that, the spirit might tempt him to the dreadful summit of the cliff that beetles o'er his base into the sea. Shakespeare certainly enjoyed the idea of cruel spirits tormenting the lost at the tops of cliffs, so much so that he created a whole scene that riffs on the idea, and that's the extraordinary scene in King Lear between the blinded Gloucester and his son Edgar. But that's a whole other podcast, I'm sure. Horatio continues, If the spirit managed to tempt Hamlet off the cliff down to the dangers below, it might there assume some other horrible form, which might deprive your sovereignty of reason and draw you into madness. For some reason, this section always makes me think of Proteus, the old man of the sea in Greek mythology, who was a notorious shapeshifter and very difficult to pin down. Horatio's warning is that this spirit might be comparably malevolent, appearing now as the ghost of the dead king, but liable to transform into something that might make Hamlet lose his mind altogether. The language is very dense here. We can read the line either as deprive you of the sovereignty of your reason, or perhaps deprive your majesty of your reason. I love that Shakespeare trusts the words enough to make both work. Here, too, Horatio almost casually introduces another key theme that'll be relevant throughout the play. Madness. But only almost casually. He senses there's a danger that this ghost might drive Hamlet insane. In the next scene, there are three carefully placed references to madness, but this is the first in the play. It's so methodical, so careful, and so subtly planted, this seed. When all of this tension is rising, should Hamlet go with the spirit or not, and indeed, will the watchman even let him? In the middle of all of this, we get this little reference 
that almost might go unnoticed. And yet, when it comes time to think about madness in earnest later in the play, we find we've already had it in mind, that it's already in our consciousness. This is how you write a great play. Such excitement and subtlety aside, Horatio continues in a portion of text that some editors insist should have been deleted because it's maybe slightly unnecessary, they maintain. Perhaps it was revised and even removed, but there's great merit in it. He continues talking about the cliff and the sea below. Think of it, he says. The very place puts toys of desperation without more motive into every brain that looks so many fathoms to the sea and hears it roar beneath. I think this is an incredible insight. That weird feeling that I myself have certainly felt at the top of a cliff or even a very tall building, looking down to the sea below. Your rational brain is, of course, not going to jump, but the imagination can't help but envisage and toy with what it might be like to jump off down all the way to the sea below. Of course, it's technically incorrect to measure the distance from the top of a cliff down to the water in fathoms, since that's for measuring the depth of water. But the poetic license Shakespeare takes only adds to the richness of the image. Horatio seems to see into Hamlet's enthusiastic but maybe self-destructive imagination here. The warning is legitimate. It falls on deaf ears, however. Hamlet is still focused on the ghost, who is still beckoning. It waves me still. Go on, I'll follow thee. Marcellus gets a line here and probably intercepts Hamlet physically. By now the watchmen likely need literally to hold him back, prompting Hamlet's next line in response. You shall not go, my lord. Hold off your hands. Horatio now has quite a fun line to say in return, something that is seldom said to a royal prince, I assume. Be ruled. You shall not go. But Hamlet is very determined. He replies, my fate cries out, and makes each petty artery in this body as hardy as the Nemean lion's nerve. Still am I cold. Unhand me, gentlemen. By heaven, I'll make a ghost of him that lets me. I say, away. Go on, I'll follow thee. Earlier, we heard Hamlet make another reference to Hercules. Claudius is no more like the dead king than Hamlet is like the mythical Greek hero. Now he's saying that this call of destiny, this beckoning apparition, is making him as hardy as the Nemean lion. This lion was synonymous with Hercules because it was the first of the hero's twelve labours. The lion's pelt was impervious to all weapons, and so Hercules had to strangle it to death. And thereafter he wore the lion's skin as a protective cloak for the rest of his life. There are a few more references to Hercules throughout this play. Hamlet never quite gets as far as likening himself to the actual hero, but each mention is significant. Likening himself to Hercules' first victim is peculiar, perhaps, but I think the point is that he's as brave as a mythologically wild beast, and won't be held back by any mere mortals. Unhand me, he insists. He'll make a ghost of anyone who holds him back. This is the first time that the word ghost is spoken in the play. Nobody has yet said that this is what the apparition might be. Of course, we've had plenty of descriptions of it, and we, we understand that this is probably what's going on. But as the tension is getting higher, it's again Shakespeare's way to put the word into play so that it's ever on our minds. Hamlet breaks free of his companions and insists that they give him space, and he and the ghost exit. 
Horatio and Marcellus are left to regroup and decide what to do next. Although Hamlet has insisted that they should not follow, they debate what they're actually going to do. Even in the midst of this great tension, Horatio still phrases his observations quite beautifully. He waxes desperate with imagination. Marcellus, a little more pedestrian, is rather more pragmatic. He says, let's follow, tis not fit thus to obey him. These are desperate times, and of course, they can't just obey Hamlet's command. They need to make sure he's all right. Horatio agrees and wonders what might be in store. Have after. To what issue will this come? And now we get one of the most famous lines, a gift for the actor doomed to the secondary role of Marcellus, and presumably a few others throughout the play. He says, and I'm sure you know it already, something is rotten in the state of Denmark. This is surely among the top ten most famous lines in Hamlet, and indeed gives its name to a recent Broadway musical, Something Rotten. Marcellus diagnoses that the kingdom is sick. We've had a more extended analysis of Denmark in the first scene, and he sums it up quite beautifully and quite simply here. Something is rotten. Even the fact that he calls it a state and not a kingdom is probably noteworthy. This is not least for the sake of the verse, but surely also because the new king is not a patch on his predecessor, himself now a ghost that's just led the heir to the throne away for a chat. If this is a kingdom, it's in serious trouble. Almost optimistically, Horatio now predicts that heaven will direct it. Less moved by such lofty ideas, Marcellus stays practical. Nay, let's follow him. So the two barrel off in hot pursuit, and we move swiftly into Act 1, Scene 5, which we will start in the next episode. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join me then.